0: again, friends, and welcome to Madison Bookbeat, your listener-sponsored community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your host, Stu Levitan. My guest today is UW History Professor Stephen Kantrowitz, whose new book should be of special interest to those of us here in Tjope. It's Citizens of a Stolen Land, a Ho-chunk history of the 19th century United States from the good people at the University of North Carolina Press. If you're like most Americans with an immigrant background, you probably think citizenship is a good thing because it confers rights and privileges. But for Native Americans in the 19th century, it was something quite different. It was a way to destroy their collectivist culture and ultimately steal their land, to replace indigenous society with settler-colonist society. But some Native peoples, notably the Ho-Chunk, figured out how to use citizenship and private property rights to reclaim land and preserve their identity. The Ho-Chunk story in the removal era is one of both settler-colonist violence and conquest, but also of Ho-Chunk resistance, persistence, and return. It is a story Stephen Kantowitz is very qualified to tell. He is the Plannard, Bascom, and Vilas Distinguished Achievement Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He is also an affiliate faculty member in American Indian Studies and Afro American Studies at the UW Madison, where he teaches courses on race, indigeneity, politics, and citizenship. His previous books are More Than Freedom Fighting for Black Citizenship in a White Republic, 1829 to 1889, and Ben Tillman and the Reconstruction of White Supremacy. And of particular interest to me, he co chaired with Dr. Floyd Rose, president of 100 Black Men of Madison the Chancellor's Committee in 2018 that produced a very knowledgeable and nuanced report on the Ku Klux Klan on campus. It is a pleasure to welcome to Madison Bookbeat Professor Stephen Kantrowitz.
1: Really nice to be here, thanks to
0: In their language, what did the Ho-Chunk understand citizen to mean?
1: Well, uh, up until fairly recently, uh, at least in my conversations with Ho-Chunk people, Citizen has not been a meaningful word word in the Ho Chunk language. There is a term higihire, uh, which uh, means belonging to a place or community. Uh, but that that tells you something right there. It's not a description of individual rights. It's not a description of the relationship of an individual to a polity. It's it's a description, or uh, at least connotes being enmeshed in uh, a common world. Now. You know, citizen in its 18th century into 19th century implications has some of those some of those feelings attached to it as well. We use it connotatively to talk about uh, a sense of common purpose and and shared achievement. But when it comes to uh, to law and uh, to the technical meanings of citizen, we really most frequently are talking about individuals in their relationship to to political structures, and uh, that is not a uh, uh, that is not a particularly Ho Chunk way of thinking, at least insofar as I understand that.
0: So everyone was on a collision course to begin with, just from their their background of, of what they understood the terms to mean.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, uh, but but I think even more to the point, perhaps. Um, The word citizen begins as a kind of a slogan of the revolutionary revolutionary era and only really over the course of the 19th century in the United States develops firm meanings that are attached to to law and to the constitution. But uh, from the beginning, as a slogan, citizen seems to describe property holders people who have a right to reside in a place, people who can't be forcibly expelled from that place, uh, people who have adopted, you know, the sort of toolkit of Euro-American settler society. So uh, fixed boundaries, the English language, probably Christian worship, uh, and crucially certain forms of property ownership, especially of, of real estate. Now, in in the definition of citizenship there's nested a series of kind of antitheses and what i call anti-citizenships and obviously in the us history a crucial anti-citizenship is enslavement slaves are the opposites of citizens they're dependent dangerous violent you know all of the things that that occur in the eyes of citizens distinguish themselves from uh, people not deserving of, of citizenship. And, and African-Americans you know, have did and continue to labor under the stigma of that anti-citizenship. Native Americans did and continue to labor under a different anti-citizenship, which is the anti-citizenship of the quote, savage. And the, the, Consti- the constitution doesn't refer to them in those terms, but the Declaration of Independence does, uh, referring to, to native people as quote, merciless Indian savages. And that idea of savagery and its antithesis to civilization defines native people as the opposite of citizens and the negation of citizens. And so uh, the idea that they would or could uh, be part of the American project as, as anything other than fully assimilated um, it really strikes most, most Americans as, as highly unlikely and undesirable for, for most of American history.
0: The notion of citizenship vis-a-vis blacks, following former slaves, blacks following the Civil War would, would be an issue that we're going to get to in a little bit. Sure. That, I mean, that, that really confounded some of the members of Congress and trying to figure out what all that meant. Uh, the Wisconsin Constitution of 1848 enfranchised, quote, civilized persons of Indian yeah. descent, not members of any tribe. Would there have been universal agreement on what those terms meant and their implications?
1: Um, no, there would not have been. Um, because it's a little bit like uh, that famous Supreme Court definition of pornography. I know it when I see it, right? But, but it's not codified. There is what I would call uh, a, a penumbra of expectations around what civilization meant. Now, not member of any tribe was a little bit easier to define. Uh, people who paid taxes, for example, uh, in a you know, in an American community were understood in some way to have sufficiently separated themselves from tribal government to be incorporated. And they would fall, they could fall under that rubric, and some did uh, in Wisconsin in the in, in after the mid-century, in, in the 19th in the 19th century. Um, but um, but no, there, there wasn't firm agreement. And in fact, I, I would argue that that's part of the point is that having a, a standard like that, that, uh, that sets out some parameters, puts it in the hands of local settler officials, local white officials predominantly to determine whether someone has or has not met that standard. Uh, and that of course was part of the point here is that local settler communities could determine which native people could or could not enter their boundaries uh, in in a literal or in a legal figurative way.
0: The... There's
1: another there's another um, piece of that Constitution though, which is equally interesting, which is that persons having once been declared citizens of the United States, even if that citizenship has been revoked, are are understood to be citizens of Wisconsin, and that refers to um, to the Stockbridge Muncie uh, Band of Mohican Indians, who. Um, had, like the Brother Town, um, become citizens of the United States uh, earlier in the decade, but, but, for, but who had had and continued to have kind of an, a civil war within the community about whether that had been a good idea and about the, the, the really dangerous effects that that had opened up with the ability of, of white settler society and its, and its settlers to seize their land. Um, and so the, the Stockbridge Muncie had actually successfully had their U.S. citizenship reversed and their tribal status uh, regained before the Wisconsin Constitution was was put into place. Uh, but that had left all kinds of property claims and other matters that, in dispute kind of hanging there. And so the Wisconsin Constitution, in in establishing the citizenship of that particular group of Native people, was seeking to continue the possibility that those land contracts would be good and that settlers could continue uh, to amass and, 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 and take possession of, of Stockbridge land.
0: One thing that wasn't ambiguous at the, in that era was the attitude of first the territory and then the state and the first great seal of the state of Wisconsin essentially says the quiet part out loud. It shows yeah. an Indian heading off into the distance with the motto "Civilization succeeds barbarism." Yes, civilization succeeds barbarism. Yeah. Uh, a slogan that Henry Dodge himself, I'm sure, would have uh, endorsed. Absolutely, if he didn't actually designed this. Uh, that's it in a nutshell, isn't it? The 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 settler yeah. attitude towards the the native peoples.
1: Yeah. Um, There's a very, uh, an amorphous and yet very powerful idea of what civilization is, what's encompassed in it and who doesn't fit into it. And the idea is that Wisconsin will be the happy home of a new civilization organized around a new race, white people, organized around a new form of land use, private property ownership, cereal and other intensive uh, kinds of production. Uh, and that there won't really be a place for Native people in that world unless, perhaps, they're willing to adopt most or all of that toolkit and, quote, civilization uh, and and enter into the society on those terms. Not as members of a tribe, not as members of uh, a distinct culture, but as assimilating Americans.
0: And they could, and they, that... Attachment to civilization would manifest itself by everything from their clothes to their hair, to
1: exactly the division exactly. of labor. Yeah, the idea, going back to, to Thomas Jefferson, um, the, the sort of, I mean, if you want to call it utopian, you can, from a native perspective, it's anything but. But from a settler utopian perspective, uh, rather than being annihilated in the conquest, native people would uh melt into american society and be absorbed into it and that is a recurring theme in us indian policy uh, you know it it undergirds many of the most uh horrific moments in in uh in policy in fact including most recently uh, the termination policy uh which was such a disaster for for the menominee nation in the 1950s uh the idea that you could simply say well Indian time is over. It's American time now. Uh, people need to just assimilate into American society. Full stop. Um, and of course, you know, native people who retain um, uh, community and identity and culture and language for them, that insistence is is just catastrophic. Uh, if 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 the government tries to enforce it uh, or to or to use that policy to undermine native forms of self determination sovereignty uh and and uh cultural life
0: how much did something as basic to the native people's way of life as the division of labor offend and and upset and confuse the settlers the fact that women were like digging lead i mean how 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 yeah. hard was that for the settlers to get their heads around and, and understand
1: for for settlers generally Um, the division of labor in many native societies, including in Ho-Chung society, mystifying and a sign of a culture completely out of step with, quote, civilization, Uh, because uh, women were visible doing uh, both farming and mining, and those two activities did not strike settlers as reasonable or proper activities for women. Uh, Men's economic activity or men's subsistence activity uh, you know, involved uh, hunting among other things, and that struck many Americans as a, a kind of a more of a not exactly a leisure pursuit, but a um, an undisciplined pursuit, which it any was anything but an undisciplined pursuit. It was a, a highly disciplined and crucial economic activity, uh, but Americans saw it as a sign of Native men's unwillingness to do the sort of hard, systematic labor of farming which in their view was the sign of a well-disciplined household. So it was all from a settler perspective, what they saw happening in Ho-Chunk and other native societies was um, topsy-turvy and just badly ordered. By
0: 1848, of course, we'd already had three very significant acts by the United States government, the Preemption Act of 1830, Uh, the Treaty of 1832, which led to the founding of Madison, and the Treaty of 1837. What were their respective impacts?
1: So there's two pieces of legislation in 1830 that really matter. One is the Indian Removal Act, which establishes as a formal federal policy that the the president will say, either accept our bid for this land and go exchange it for land west of the Mississippi, or we're going to extend state law over you and, you know, that's it for you, because most states had highly discriminatory uh, uh, policies in effect for non-white people, and so Native people who chose to remain under state law would be a, in, in terrible situation, unable to enforce their rights in any way. Uh, the the Preemption Act goes hand in glove with the Indian Removal Act, because what it says is if you've squatted on the quote public lands of the United States, which means any land that used to belong to Native people, but now the U.S. has asserted authority over, uh, will, rec- will respect and recognize that claim and allow you to purchase that land at a very low price. And what that means is that gives settled squatters, basically, uh, every incentive in the world to cross the treaty line, squat on Native land, and presume that the federal government will come and make those claims good. And the Indian Removal Act virtually guarantees that that's the case. It doesn't work in literally every case, but it works in so many that these two laws together really create this two step, I call it, of squatters and soldiers. So the squatters cross the line, they seize the land, they get into conflict with Native people. Uh, the army is called in first as a quote, peacekeeper, and then essentially to push Native people out. Uh, and then the line is reestablished at a bar- point farther west, and the process repeats.
0: And you get regional and,
1: warlords like Henry Dodge. Exactly. And regional warlords like Henry Do- Dodge are exactly the people who make good those squatter pretensions to the land because they come in armed, they come in in numbers, they come in exploiting resources and making money. Uh, and as soon as the federal government comes in, it when they're looking for local people uh, to enforce their laws and their principles, that's who they turn to. So Dodge... Creates uh, an illegal squatter frontier militia, and within a couple of years, it becomes a unit of the federal dragoons. He's incorporated into the federal army and is a colonel. And, so,
0: and yeah. becomes the first territorial governor.
1: Exactly, exactly. And um, so, this is a it's a fairly ugly process, really, when you when you when you understand it in those terms as a begins in illegal settlement, and ends with its ratification. The treaties of 1832 and 1837, crucial documents here, as you say, 1832 is the legal basis for the existence of the city of Madison, among other things. Uh, it includes not just the region that the Ho-Chung called De jo, but also uh, a huge chunk of the land recognized as their homeland by the United States just a few years before uh, in 1825 in the Treaty of Prairie du Chien. The Treaty of 1832 is pretty naked land grab. Uh, it, it comes following the Black Hawk War, which is uh, the pursuit of uh, a, a band of dissident socks, uh, mostly by the U.S. Army and territorial militia uh, across the Ho-Chunk homeland, uh, and in which the Ho-Chunk had played really fairly minor military role. Uh, a few had sided with Black Hawk and his band in, in military terms. Some had served the U.S. Uh, as scouts and in other capacities, overall the ho chunk had actually tried to keep the peace during that struggle by hiding black hawks band uh, in the swamps north of lake kashkanon and it almost worked and if they'd succeeded it's possible they could have delayed the entry of the us in force into their territory but black hawks band were discovered chased across the territory massacred at bad axe and in the aftermath of that of that massacre with thousands of US soldiers uh scattered across the Ho Chunk homeland, the US sits the Ho Chunk down and says, here we are, we like the look of this land, we're gonna take it now. And the the treaty commissioners are really open in their letters back to Washington. You know, this treaty was made on the blended grounds of contract and coercion, they say. <laughs> it's quite, it's quite frank, right? They they wanted the land, they had the military force in place to take it, they took it and the Ho-Chunk sign it under duress. The Treaty of 1837, which strips the Ho-Chunk of the rest of their domain in today's Wisconsin, is even more naked land grab than that. They coerce a delegation of Ho-Chunks into coming to Washington. They don't want to go. They refuse to go. When they do finally go, uh, they send delegates who are not from the clan that is authorized to treat for land. Thinking that this will protect them from uh, having to sign a treaty they don't want to, but in Washington they're further coerced, they're threatened, they're lied to. When they finally sign the treaty, kind of in desperation, uh, you know, fearful that they won't be able to get back uh, to the homeland in time to plant, uh, they think that they have uh, four years to to get ready to leave Wisconsin. Uh, in fact, the treaty says eight months. So there's a real, there's just a really fairly naked and ruthless uh, succession of coercions uh, and lies that, that lead to the Treaty of 1837, which is, you know, finally brings the federal government to a series of of military attempts to remove the Ho-Chunk from Wisconsin over and over and over again in in the late 1830s and on through the 1840s and the 50s.
0: The Black Hawk War of course introduces introduces us to Captain Abraham Lincoln who fought many bloody battles with the mosquitoes. We will get back to the settler colonist president Abraham Lincoln in a bit. The US attitude towards treaties seems to be either imposing really harsh terms or dealing or having a fairly okay treaty and then ignoring it. Yeah. Is it possible to sketch out an alternate history of the United States in which the government negotiated fair treaties and actually enforced them? Um, so it depends.
1: It depends on demography, I think. Um, the way that the United States, from its first movement across the proclamation line in the 18th century, approaches the question of Western lands is as a question of what will later be called manifest destiny as um, a question of entitlement rather than negotiation. And negotiations with native people only take comparatively egalitarian and respectful form when the native people are understood to have the kind of military force that's required to press back against the United States. So in the 1790s, in the early 1790s, when native delegations come to Washington, President Washington tells his cabinet, I know that our goal is to take their land, but don't say it. <laughs> we don't have the military <laughs> capacity to, to make good on that. And it's gonna cause a world of trouble. And indeed in the early, early 1790s, U.S. armies get routed by Native confederacies and forces in the Ohio country. It's not until 1794 uh, and then the treaty in 1795 that follows it that the U.S. begins to have the kind of military might in the West uh, to to push Native people across those lines repeatedly again and again. But again, throughout the 19th century, Native people. As individual tribes or bands or in larger confederacies push back militarily against that conquest, sometimes with some success. Uh, we don't recognize those successes so much when they happen because they're absences rather than presences in US history. But for example, <laughs> during the 1840s, when the US is consumed with a struggle over Western expansion, over the terms of Western expansion, over the question of slavery. Uh, U.S. expansion into the West is, is really stymied by that internal U.S. debate. And while that happens, the Lakota, in particular, in the Northern Plains, uh, gain enormous military strength and are, are able to create the kind of um, uh, political, economic, military force that really deters U.S. entry into that territory in a significant way for decades. Uh and then, of course, and the culmination of that comes, of course, you know, in the in the plains course of the 1870s. And, and the battle we know as Little Bighorn, which is, in fact, a, a, a victory over the U.S., kind of becomes the signal for the end of that, uh, that military dominance over that territory. But it's worth thinking about the fact that for several decades, the military might of the Lakota deterred the U.S. from 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 enforcing or, or, or pressing upon them. Uh, the kind of confiscatory treaties that we see in other places. Um, but um, in in the lower Great Lakes and in the Western Great Lakes, um, the territories that, that we're talking about here, uh, the the Native formations after after really after the Shawnee Confederacy in the in the in the early 18 teens, Tecumseh's Confederacy, don't really have the power to press back against the US uh, to 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 deter or repel. Those processes and so treaties end up being a kind of ratification of U.S. demands, as much or more than a negotiation in good faith between between sovereigns.
0: We're talking with Professor Stephen Kantrowitz. His book is "Citizens of a Stolen Land: A Ho Chunk History of Nineteenth Century United States." Where did the for, Where did the idea for the government to use citizenship as a way to steal native lands come from in the first place? Hmm. Well, it kind
1: of it evolves out of uh, a series of treaties in the early 19th century where the word citizen crops up here and there uh, as a way of saying, oh, these, for example, Cherokee leaders can stay in the territory that we're now uh, taking for the United States, and they will be citizens of the United States. Um, and over time, as the federal government begins to press, actively press the policy of civilization on Native nations, the word citizen begins to come up in in treaties and and laws of the 1830s as a way of signaling these people are now incorporated into the United States uh, as individuals rather than as members previously of their tribal nation or community. Uh, So that it develops really piecemeal across a lot of treaties but in the and, and including in treaties in Wisconsin and laws in Wisconsin in the 1830s and 40s, it's not really until the 1850s that federal policy kind of routinizes this and says, okay, citizenship is going to be uh, a part of the toolkit along with private property ownership and the dissolution of the tribe that is going to mark the incorporation of a Native community into the United States. And even then, even when they make that a kind of formal practice they don't always remember to put the word citizen in the treaty <laughs> um so you know it's it's a fairly um it's a fairly inconsistent practice you know because the word citizen doesn't have so much clarity of legal or constitutional meaning in in, in the eyes of americans in fact in 1862 in the middle of the civil war a case comes before the attorney general that asks whether Uh, these free black men who seized a confederate ship can claim it as a prize. And the question is, are they citizens? And therefore, are they eligible under U.S. law to claim that as a prize and get the money for it? And he says, huh, well, you know, uh, we've been living with this word citizen for 80 odd years, but none of us really knows what it means. This is the attorney general of the United States. So it it really takes the post-war amendments and, and laws to begin to set some parameters around citizenship and give it that clarity of meaning, at least in national terms.
0: But using it as a marker for differentiate. For, as I understand it, they use citizenship to dissolve the tribal rights and and dissolve the collective community and, and make the land easier to steal. Did that yes. arise just organically as opposed to somebody, as opposed to, you know, James Madison or John Marshall or Andrew Jackson saying, ah, here's an idea. It's a great question. You know, I see it emerge
1: as a, as an idea, as part of a a, a matrix of ideas designed to take land. Uh, But, um, but there's no, I have not seen a light bulb moment where federal policymakers go, oh, we'll call it citizenship. And that'll let us do this because they don't use the word with consistency, uh, even in treaties that are clearly designed to dissolve uh, tribal collective ownership. Sometimes they do. Uh, the treaty with the Wyandotte in 1855 and, and a series of, of other treaties that have really catastrophic effects for for the Native nations that adopt them. Uh, citizen Potawatomi uh, come in under those terms. Uh, but But sometimes they don't. Sometimes they just don't use the word citizen even though later on they go back and they look at the treaty and say, oh, yeah, we made them citizens there, even though the treaty doesn't say citizen. What they mean is we dissolved the tribe and 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 and, and divided their land into private holdings. And that constitutes citizenship in the eyes of later policymakers.
0: What about your light bulb moment? As I noted in the introduction, citizenship is generally perceived as a good thing. You and I both have ancestors, maybe not too far back, for whom citizenship was a very big deal. Did you have an aha moment when you suddenly understood that it was also a tool for land-grabbing yeah. colonialism? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know,
1: I think about a lot of light bulb moments in terms of this project, but um, I think that moment occurred to me kind of backwards because I first thought about the word citizenship in terms of this history when I encountered the the crucial moment in the 1870s when the Ho-Chunk use it, deploy it back against the United States as the way that they will claim the right to stay in Wisconsin on their own terms. And so I looked at it first there as a triumph, actually a a very productive and positive use of the concept of citizenship, more akin to the kind of reconstruction African-American claim to citizenship or the civil rights claim to citizenship following from those constitutional changes uh, that that form a part of a progressive narrative of citizenship, the the more positive one that you're referring to and that I think both of our ancestors uh, profited from when they arrived in the United States. But it only later began to dawn on me that this was an ironic use of citizenship in Indian country, and that they were deploying a policy that for the most part had been used to undermine rather than bolster native sovereignty. And that took me, that wasn't a light bulb moment. That was a long grinding kind of reconsideration of making arguments and then realizing they really didn't work and going back into the sources and. It just really doing a keyword search for citizen across the entire corpus of American treaties and then realizing what the timeline told me. And then belatedly realizing that I was not the first person to to, to figure this out, <laughs> but that's just the, um, that that's the, the cost of coming to this field uh, kind of late in my career and having to reverse engineer an education for myself in it.
0: But isn't that the great thing about, Being a professor, being a researcher is, okay, what about this? And and however long it takes, you finally figure it out and go, oh, this is interesting. I hadn't realized this before.
1: There is nothing so beautiful to me as mid-career ignorance because, you know, like it's not going to cost me tenure. (laughs) It's not going to be the end of my world that I got something pretty wrong. I go ask for help and the beautiful part about that is i get to go ask for help from graduate students and brilliant young assistant professors and i get to get mentored by 30 year olds and that's that's phenomenal i i love that and 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 that's been a really uh rejuvenating and uh and fascinating uh, part of this project and of this stage of my career too is to get to do that again right
0: well well on that point your background your Academic background has has been in the black white world. Yes. Before the war, war, post war, how did how did you come to start looking at the same kind of issues through the Native American lens? Yeah. So I had
1: always known that there was something missing from from my education. uh You know, I was maybe assigned a total of one book and one article in Native American history in the entirety of my graduate education. And that's not, I don't, I'm not blaming my advisors exactly. I'm blaming the profession for having really almost totally failed to integrate and, and account for Native history as part of US history. Um, but But when I started teaching at UW, I would try to bring Native American history and Native perspectives into classes and it never fit it was always contrapuntal it was always in tension with the rest of the course and and i felt very frustrated by it and i i stopped trying really very much and then in the 21st century especially in the 2010s more and more of my colleagues began to look west began to colleagues in civil war reconstruction um, mostly organized around black white histories uh, began to look west and think west and What we found there was that the same thing you'll find if you pick up an American history textbook published before 2015 or so, which is you get to the end of the Civil War and then you have a chapter on Reconstruction and a chapter on the West. They take place at the same time, but they have nothing to do with each other. It's like a chapter on the coming of the Civil War, which is a chapter about abolition and pro-slavery and that conflict and a chapter on Manifest Destiny. They sit next to each other, they've got nothing to do with each other. How can this be? It's the same nation, it's the same personnel, it's the same people, it's the same institutions, it's the same geographies. How can it be that we have kept these so segregated from each other? And the answer is that Native American history uh, is a fundamental kind of epistemological and existential challenge to U.S. history. It says, nope, somebody else owns this land. Somebody else lives on this land. And the, the empty space that the American map of the West imagines is not empty. But to take account of that, really to take account of that is to call into question many of the foundational uh, assumptions of that other Eastern focused history. To bring this back to Abraham Lincoln, You know, we have one really powerful set of arguments and conversations about Abraham Lincoln. Was he the white man's president, as Frederick Douglass famously calls him at one point in the 1870s? Um, Was he the great emancipator? Was he both? Um, Douglass actually did think he was both. Uh, How do we understand Lincoln's anti-Blackness in relationship to his... Commitment to creating a non-racial nation, and in fact, in some in, in, at the end of his career, his willingness to put democracy over white supremacy, which is a choice that no other American president of the nineteenth century made. Uh, ha- so that's a really fraught and powerful conversation, and one you could have all day about the value of of thinking about Lincoln, about his worthiness as a as a as a president, about his meaning for American race relations understood as black-white. Um, those questions continue. Scholars continue to struggle over that. I was just part of an anthology on this question, um, published last year, (laughs) you know, like this is a crop that never fails in American history, but the question of Lincoln as a settler president and a Lincoln who never imagined that any native nation should stand in the way of U.S. expansion into the West, you know, Lincoln who signs, uh, The death warrants for the Dakota Thirty Eight in Minnesota in 1862, Lincoln who signs the order expelling the Ho Chunk from Wisconsin, uh, from excuse me from Minnesota uh, in 1863, Um, you know that Lincoln never shows up in our account of this. That settler president is not part of our story because it's destabilizing. You know, Uh, the the question of whether the value of a Lincoln statue can be argued about in in terms of his legacy in the Civil War and Reconstruction and in relationships between Black and white people and the American nation. A Lincoln statue on Bascom Hill is a monument to that. It's also a monument uh, on the Ho-Chunk's highest hill to a member of the settler-conqueror army. That's a complicated thing.
0: You're reading the bits about Lincoln in the book, Remind Me, oh yeah, this is this is why that statue is offensive to a lot of Native peoples. I mean, this, is, In terms of the overlap of the Civil War and the story you're telling, the Battle of Antietam happened during the Dakota Wars. That's right. That's
1: right. It's not an accident that the Dakota go to war with the U.S. when the U.S. is otherwise preoccupied. That's a strategic decision. You know, and one similar to the kind of strategic decisions made by enslaved rebels, for example, earlier in the century to go to war with the U.S. when it's preoccupied and decide with its enemies when possible, you know, to make a a coalition. And in fact, there's a lot of rumor circulating around in in Minnesota and Wisconsin in the 1860s that the Dakota and perhaps the Ho-Chunk have made an alliance with the Confederacy. I don't think that's true. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's not true. But Um, But it is an interesting, you know, um, interesting to think about Native people in the upper Midwest thinking continentally and strategically about the United States and their enemy. Right. As engaged in a, you know, a total war that's going to take its attention away and take its soldiers away.
0: While we're on the topic of famous white men with difficult backgrounds, (laughs) Frederick Jackson Turner. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. As a young scholar, was there a part of you that was thrilled at becoming a member of the history department that Frederick Jackson Turner once made famous? So
1: by the time that I joined the department, which is in 1995, Turner's legacy was, I would say, already contested. You know, Patricia Limerick had published Legacy of Conquest some years before the the bubbling up of a kind of contrarian Western history that, um, that did not think about the frontier in the in Ternarian terms. Um, in fact, rejected Ternarian terms for the frontier uh, had already emerged. On the other hand, um, my, my very senior colleague at that point, Bill Cronin, was the Frederick Jackson Turner professor of American history. Uh, and there was a bust of Frederick Jackson Turner in our department lounge. There was an oil painting of him still in our conference room. You know, he's a crucial figure in the history of American history and in the history of American history at the University of Wisconsin. And there's a plaque to him on Bascom Hill sitting directly across from the our shared future marker which recognizes that this is ho land. planned. Uh, you know the the legacy remains contested in in the department. I would say I, I don't think that I had uh, I don't think that I had anything more than ambivalence uh, uh, about taking on that legacy. A couple of years after I arrived in the department, um, we hired a Native American historian for the first time in a long time, Ned Blackhawk and his first book which came out in the early 2000s won the Frederick Jackson Turner prize from the organization of American historians and even by that point we were joking you know that that Ned should take the prize and hang it around the bust of turner's neck you know with <laughs> violence over the land which is the title of his first book around it so so i think we were i was and we were younger scholars already uh skeptical at least of turner's legacy and um and about that and i will say um, you know, we have a Frederick Jackson Turner professorship in the department and and it, it was endowed by Merle Curdy, a much beloved historian in his department and a wonderful person who I had the privilege to meet uh, when I was a very young faculty member. Curdy um, named it in honor of his beloved mentor. And so it's sitting in the department, but I, I'm not sure you can find an American historian in the department right now who wants to be the Frederick Jackson Turner professor of American history. I could not take that up, for example, and and look my Ho-Chunk colleagues in the, in the eye. I, I wouldn't think to do that. that. That would seem to me to be
0: grotesque. For those who haven't read the book, and I do highly recommend reading the book, explain briefly his racist perception of the Ho-Chunk and, in particular, the role his father played in advancing yeah. the settler conquest.
1: So Frederick Jackson Turner was born in Portage. Uh, in the 1860s, and his father was the editor of a pro-removal newspaper that sort of beat the drum over and over again about how the remaining Ho-Chunk needed to be deported from the state. They were you know, a nuisance. They were a problem. Um, and Turner grew up in that world and in a world in which actual federal troops did come to Wisconsin in 1874 and try to expel the Ho-Chunk once and for all from the state. And the fact that they failed is an important part of this history, but they didn't fail because uh, Turner's father wanted them to fail. He wanted them to succeed. And Turner grew up in that world. As a boy, Turner went fishing with his friends along the Barrowboo River. He would encounter bands of Ho-Chung people and, and write about them later only in the most derogatory, derisive, fearful ways. They're alien, savage, outsiders, relics of another time, uh, untrustworthy, primitive, you know all the things one can imagine uh, a young boy projecting his racist fears and fantasies onto a group of people. But the thing is, as Turner matures, he continues not to see Native people as full-fledged human beings and continues not to see their societies and their polities as real or meaningful. So when he writes about Native people in his most famous essay, "The Significance of the Frontier," or or in other works, most frequently they show up only as a foil for American civilization. And in fact, uh, at one point he he writes about them, a succession of of native leaders and confederacies, you know, starting with Pontiac and going forward uh, to to Tecumseh, to Sitting Bull, all the way through the end of the nineteenth century. He says. You know, again and again, they they rallied their troops and fought against the Americans, and all they did was become a a whetstone for uh, uh, American civilization. So, what we can say about Turner then is he's not interested in Native people as people. He's not interested in Native societies as societies. He's interested in something called American society, American civilization, and that civilization can only come into being by struggling against a savage frontier. And that savage frontier is composed in part of native people. But they have no future in his vision of, of America and the vision of the United States. They only exist in the past, or you know, as, uh, as the uh, Ojibwe historian Gene O'Brien puts it, "In Indians can never be modern. And Turner didn't see Ho-Chunks and Potawatomis and Lakotas. He saw, quote, Indians people of the past, a race rather than nations uh, and a race that was doomed to disappearance or insignificance uh, rather than, uh, as we now understand, distinct independent sovereign nations uh, doing their best to to persist and to maintain a, a degree of autonomy, integrity, and sovereignty in the face of American conquest. But that was invisible to Turner.
0: Yeah, I I would say becoming the Frederick Jackson Turner professor would be problematic for you.
1: Yeah, for not just for me. You know, uh, it's something we're gonna have, especially for me. But we're gonna we're gonna have to do something about this.
0: Yeah, Yeah. going back to the the post Civil War era, how much did the presence and the future of Native peoples confuse and even befuddle the U.S. Congress? when it took up the Civil Rights Bill in 1866 and then the 14th Amendment?
1: They really don't know what, Congress really doesn't know what to do with native people. And in fact, uh, when the Civil Rights Bill comes up in 1866, it's it's in kind of an emergency moment. You know, the Civil War is over, slavery has been abolished, but Andrew Johnson has allowed uh, former Confederates and, and, and plantation owners to return to governing their states on a white-only basis in the South. And those new state legislatures in the post-Civil War South are passing all of these laws that essentially uh, turn the idea of uh, African-American freedom into, in, in, into a charade, it restricts them from from moving freely, from owning property, from being anything other than low-wage farm laborers, and and and, and Congress can't let that happen. And so it it for the very first time creates this uh, category of national citizenship and endows national citizens with certain rights uh, that will that will undermine those black codes in the South and grant. Formerly enslaved African Americans, all the rights of other Americans. To do that, they need a definition of citizenship that incorporates all of those former slaves as well as free black people in its in its orbit. But when they come up with a definition, you know, all persons born in the United States are citizens of the United States and of the states to which they in the states in which they reside. The first question is, wait, do you mean Indians too? Oh hmm, okay uh, how do we create a definition of national citizenship that says all persons born, but that excludes Native people? That's not a immediately obvious thing, right? because the United States claims all of that territory and if Native people are born in that territory, then aren't they American citizens? Well, that wasn't the, that's not that's not our intention. so so how do we separate them out? okay all persons born are naturalized, except Indians not taxed. Taxing is thought to be a proxy for real estate ownership, and real estate ownership is thought to be a sign of being enmeshed in American society. And so uh, Native people who are paying taxes uh, can be understood to be sufficiently enmeshed in the U.S. that, yeah, it's safe to make them citizens. But the rest of them, Indians not taxed, meaning Indians still under tribal government, are not incorporated as citizens. So they think about this immediately and think they've solved the problem, but then they realize that they've got an even bigger problem which is that um, nobody really understands the taxing power and its effect on citizenship. And if you literally say that if native people are taxed that they become citizens, then a state could decide to tax or not tax its native residents and thereby make them or not make them into U.S. citizens. And the whole point of the Civil Rights Act and leader of the 14th Amendment is to establish federal supremacy over citizenship so that the states can't determine who is it and is not a citizen. And so you can't let the states decide that through the taxing power. So you need to come up with another formulation. So the 14th Amendment Citizenship Clause abandons that Indians not taxed frame, framework in favor of subject to the jurisdiction, which is a little more capacious, which talks about the United States and its jurisdiction. Um, But again, the problem there immediately emerges. Doesn't the United States really claim jurisdiction over most of what's now the lower 48? Doesn't it assert that it in fact owns or will soon own all of that? And doesn't that amount to a claim of jurisdiction? And therefore, haven't you again made citizens out of all the native people in all that territory there are some senators who really think that that's what they've done in the 14th amendment and in fact a couple of years after enacting the 14th amendment after it's after it's ratified and becomes part of the constitution a senator from a a western state says hey wait a minute doesn't the 14th amendment make citizens out of all the indians and the senators aren't even sure they have to they have to tell the Uh, they have to panel a committee to go investigate the question and find out if they accidentally made all Native people into citizens. They decide that they didn't, but it's not
0: clear. I think my favorite part of the narrative is when this white supremacist senator from Ohio to embarrass the radical Republicans during Reconstruction emerges as the great friend of the Ho-Chunk. And explain what Senator Alan Thurman did that would profoundly affect the Ho-Chunk future.
1: So Alan Thurman is a truly despicable uh white supremacist <laughs> Democrat from Ohio uh, I mean really like a proponent of race war and a, just a, a he's as bad as Ben Tillman uh but he's also an extremely capable politician very good orator uh very effective in Congress he's actually the vice presidential nominee of the Democratic Party later in the century he um he notices that Wisconsin's uh Republican representatives in in the House and the Senate are trying to get a bill passed to appropriate some money to expel the Ho-Chung from Wisconsin. And they've been doing it for a couple of years in the early 1870s. And he says, well, hang on a second. On On what grounds are you trying to expel these people? And they say, well, you know, they're unwelcome neighbors. They gave up all their land in earlier treaties. They've got no business here. He says, well, just because they're unwelcome neighbors doesn't mean you can expel them. That's not a constitutional argument. And in fact, if they are no longer members of the, the tribe that, that, that went out West, if they don't accept the authority of, of, that, of that, the tribal leaders in that reservation, then they're not subject to its authority. They're not subject to its jurisdiction. And if they're not subject to its jurisdiction, then surely they are subject to the jurisdiction of the United States. And if they are subject to the jurisdiction of the United States, they're citizens of the United States. And you have no more right to expel them from Wisconsin than any other citizen of the United States. He really sets the Republicans back on their heels. And he ends up kind of uh, intimidating them with this argument sufficiently that they agree to the proposition that the Ho-Chunk shouldn't be, they shouldn't be required to leave the state, only encouraged to leave the state and that no military force will be used to make them leave the state. And that's a crucial, crucial concession on the part of the removal uh, proponents in Wisconsin and in Congress. Because once you take military force out of the equation, there is no force that can keep the Ho-Chunk expelled from Wisconsin. They want to come back, and they do come back.
0: You open the book in a 1873, with a group of Ho-Chunk identifying themselves as, quote, the descendants of what was known in the year 1837 and subsequent as Dandy's Band. And they were petitioning the Federal Office of Indian Affairs to become citizens. Uh, first of all, tell us who Dandy's Band was, who Dandy was and what his band was.
1: Dandy's Band were the people whose who and whose ancestors had followed a Ho-Chunk civil chief named Wakanja Heriga, uh, or Roaring Thunder, who was known to to Americans as Dandy, or sometimes Chief Dandy. And he had been one of the most famous and effective resistant leaders of the Ho-Chunk during the removal era. He had only occasionally been forced west of the Mississippi River, and when he had been, had come right back and had established a series of different settlements in what's today Wisconsin, despite the presence of settlers nearby. And his group of Ho-Chunk people had been among the least interested in the the American program of so-called civilization. They were living as Ho-Chunk people, speaking Ho-Chunk, pursuing the same economic activities, uh, moving across the same geographies, uh, all you know within the limits of what settler civilization permitted, but still uh, really living as Ho-Chung people in the Ho-Chung homeland. And so what's really striking about this petition in 1873 is that it's a, a group of the Ho-Chung people least likely to be asking for citizenship and to embrace so-called civilization, making exactly that demand. And so it raises the question, and as I got deeper into the research, continued to raise the question for me, what are they on about?
0: Why are they making this claim at this moment, and what does it mean? So did you conclude they did not really intend to assimilate and essentially surrender to the manifest destiny of settler conquest and, in fact, had something more clever and subtle in mind?
1: Exactly, exactly, that they they had understood something really interesting about settler civilization, which is that its leaders didn't really have a clear grasp of the meaning of its own key words. They didn't really understand what they meant by civilization and how much of what parts of it were enough. And they didn't really understand the relationship between that kind of inchoate mess called civilization and the other thing called citizenship which they thought they had well defined, but they really had. What Dandy's band deduced is that there were yawning gaps in Americans understanding of both of these keywords of civilization and of citizenship. Uh, In the case of civilization, that Americans didn't know how much civilization was enough or what pieces of it counted the most and how much you had to show in order to count as civilized. And in the case of, civil, of citizenship, uh, Americans didn't really understand what they meant by subject to the jurisdiction. And so the, the descendants of Dandy's Band, as they call themselves, kind of walk through the gaps produced by those incoherences in Americans' understanding of their own keywords. And as a consequence, defeat the removal process in 1874. And by 1875, Get a special piece of legislation attached to an appropriations bill that lets them take advantage of the Homestead Act of 1862 and to purchase real estate and become legal residents of Wisconsin, thus effectively, in the in the eyes of citizen of Wisconsin citizens at least, becoming citizens of Wisconsin.
0: Were the Ho-Chunk unique in how they dealt with the whole citizenship matter? Did other nations figure this out?
1: So other nations appear to have figured out different versions of this in different ways uh the muskwaki people and some of uh, the Potawatomi groups and some some other groups uh, in the great lakes and elsewhere do figure out bits and pieces of this and, and indeed the the thing that the, the key to the ho-chunk success which is if we own property they can't remove us is at the core of all all other native groups that that seek citizenship or that acquire treaties that's their plan. It's just that in many of those instances, they're seeking to secure the lands that they're currently on. And those are the exact lands that settlers have their eyes on. And so there's an immediate conflict over uh, their ability to keep those. And and very quickly, uh, uh, settlers amass those, take them away. In the Ho-Chunk case, uh, they're they're able to, to make this pitch in a way that doesn't directly challenge uh, settlers' interest in particular parcels of land. That is, they don't set themselves up in an immediate conflict over that. And I think that helps them considerably in this case. But also, I think there's a kind of um, political and even maybe constitutional exhaustion by this point, because you know, even the Re- Wisconsin Republicans who really would like to get rid of the Ho-Chunk, Understand that there is that there's a contradiction built into that, the one that Alan Thurman pointed to, and that is that they are actually being hypocrites. They are actually uh, inconsistent in their own beliefs, and I think on some level this does this does play into their, their throwing up their hands essentially by 1875, uh, and and establishing the the conditions in which the Ho Chunk could really reestablish themselves as legitimate residents in their old homeland.
0: So we get what appears to be a happy ending with these homestead acts and then the act for the relief of the Winnebago Indians mm-hmm. in Wisconsin six years later. And then the same government passes the Dawes Act in 1887, yeah. entirely abolishing land holding in common and stealing two thirds of the native lands. How did that yeah. progression happen?
1: Well, the thing is is that the the Dawes Act it's possible looking from Washington or you know from Boston where Dawes is from it's possible to look at these two things at the so-called Indian Homestead Act that lets the Ho-Chunk buy this land in Wisconsin and at the Dawes Act as of a piece because they both imagine not collective land holding not tribal ownership but individual ownership as the end state and the desired end state uh, of policy and so from a from a great height these policies actually look compatible or even similar to one another. Now, the difference of course, is that the Ho-Chunk navigated their way to this and seized upon it as a way of getting what they want without surrendering the rest of their autonomy and sovereignty. Uh, the Dawes Act is simply imposed from above in, a, in, a, in quite a brutal way, uh, stripping native people of treaty rights, which in this case, the Ho-Chunk didn't have at this point, treaty rights to land. So, so actually, the two policies kind of fit together in a funny way.
0: Of all the horrors uh, inflicted on the Ho Chunk, was there an episode that particularly outraged you more than others? Oh boy! (laughs) Um,
1: You know the the the. Treaties, uh, each of the treaties is preceded, the 29, the big ones, 29 and 1832 and 1837 is preceded by acts of uh, settler violence and official violence and brutality and coercion and intimidation. And those are really, really ugly histories. And reading about those and reading about the misery that then the treaties uh, and, the, and the dispossessions that follow cause to huge numbers of Ho-Chung people is really hard. I think the one that, that I find the most grotesque in its just transparent unfairness is the exile of, of the Ho-Chunk bands in Minnesota uh, in the 1860s following the U.S. Dakota War, which is a, a just a really crass concession to the hysteria that's been whipped up among Minnesota settlers about all Indians generally and the Ho-Chunks simply bear the brunt of those politics and are expelled from Minnesota, banished virtually, in the same way as the Dakota. The suffering that they endure on this forced march out to, to the Dakota Territory, to this place called Crow Creek, is really, really unbelievable. They uh, they freeze and they starve and they're assaulted on the way. The, the sort of climate of anti-Indian hysteria in the region is enormous and they're Left, you know, more or less unprotected from it. And they suffer terribly once they arrive in Crow Creek. And they only really survive by escaping from there in canoes down the river, making alliances with friends among the Omaha in Nebraska and resituating themselves there by 1865. It's a truly it, it, it's just a really, it's one in a series of really searing chapters uh, in, in their history.
0: And again, we have our friend, the Great Emancipator, to thank for that.
1: We do, we do. He signed the he signed the, the bill that expels the Ho Chunk from ah uh, from from Minnesota. Yeah.
0: You mentioned Roaring Thunder. Who else in the narrative really impressed you? There's a, a
1: another civil chief, uh, a, a man named Wakanja Guga, Cobbing Thunder or Thunder Returns. He represents a kind of a different part of the story in that he reluctantly uh, goes with the bands of people who do cross the Mississippi with U.S. forces and are kind of marched up into northern Minnesota. And the U.S., in fact, sees him as a potential ally and intermediary, names him principal chief, whatever that's worth. But he doesn't take that on as a kind of uh, badge of honor. He sees that as a way of Uh, inserting himself into the conversation about the Ho-Chunk's future and influencing uh, agents and supervisors and officials in Washington. And he really pushes back against all the projects of so-called civilization and removal that the Americans keep trying to impose upon the Ho-Chunk west of the Mississippi. Finally, you know, after playing this, this game of really trying to tack back and forth between cooperating and pushing back, In in 1859 and 60, the federal government decides to break up the ho Chunk's current reservation in Southern Minnesota, a place called Blue Earth, and to survey it and to allocate it to the ho Chunk's individually, which they don't want. They want to have it uh, kept as as land in common. And when the government sends a surveyor onto the land, uh, Coming Thunder gets his allies together and they stand in the surveyor's way and they won't let him onto the land they grab his survey uh, stakes and threaten to stick him with it unless he gets off the land. And then when they send the census taker to take a census of the tribe, which is essential for, for allotting the land to them, he and his friends go into the stockade and shoo everybody out, get everybody out of the stockade so they can't be counted properly. And they prevent an accurate count from being taken. These are not, you know, in the end, successful actions. They don't actually prevent the processes from unfold. They do delay them pretty substantially. And It's just a sign of the kind of determination not to simply submit to these U.S. policies that they understand are going to be and are so destructive of uh, their relations to one another, uh, to their to their common culture and their common idea of themselves.
0: You mentioned in the book that you have what you call a very limited understanding of Ho-Chun culture and language, which I would submit is probably in the top percentile of non-native peoples, how has that understanding, however you define it, how has that understanding of culture and language helped you understand the politics and the history? So
1: speaking with people in the ho Chung language division has been really illuminating for, for understanding what, what words signify what it means that people take on certain names, And how to think about, especially clan, not something that my culture has, or that I think most non-Native cultures in the United States have, but uh, every Ho-Chunk person is born into one of 12 clans. And these clans all have names and identities, and, and each of them has a particular social responsibility to the nation as a whole. So different different clans are responsible for land or for security or for mediation or for water or for, for other other essential elements of uh, of life in the Ho Chunk world. And one of the really striking things about the sources from the 19th century, you know, the sources I've primarily been working with is that virtually no observer of the Ho Chunk in the 19th century even understands that there's such a thing as clan. And yet, it's a really central feature of the way Ho-Chung people relate to one another and think about uh, their relationships to the land. And it leads me to think that these colonial sources that I've been working with, you know, the Office of Indian Affairs and the Territorial Papers of the United States, and consistently miss the boat. <laughs> they consistently misunderstand what they're seeing in front of them. They don't understand how Ho-Chung, how Ho-Chung people worship. How they relate to one another, what their kinship structures are. So, Americans are always constant, American officials and, and observers are constantly getting Ho Chung people's names wrong. They're mistaking one person for another because they can't, they think, oh, but, but that's his son, not his nephew. And they've misunderstood completely how Ho Chun people are talking about their kinship relations. So, that, that's been really helpful for understanding at least why the sources get so many things wrong and miss so many things.
0: So, there's apparently room for a lot of new research in this field.
1: Absolutely. I will say that there are, of course, uh, Ho-Chunk scholars out there. There are a few uh, historians practicing, uh, doing great work, um, Amy Lontree, Renu Ramirez. Uh, there are there are also um, a number of Ho-Chunk graduate students who are pursuing this. And the work that ho Chung people can do <laughs> as scholars working from working from home, as the expression in the field goes now, is really incredible and can shed light on things that an uh, outsider scholar just just can't. And I'm thinking here of a graduate student in anthropology at UW, Molly Pollitt, and a graduate student in the School of Human Ecology, Josie Lee, who runs the Ho-Chunk Museum and Cultural Center up in Toma you know both of whom can bring to bear on this history and on these questions a whole not not just a whole different perspective but a whole other set of questions and a whole other set of concerns that come from within the tribal experience within the the contemporary community and its shared understanding uh, or contested understanding of its past and what so one of the one of the common threads in in early reactions to this book has been, I oh, really thank you. Thanks for writing this book. I really appreciate this book. I wish a Ho-Chung person had written this book, to which I say, me too. And I can't wait to see what happens when a generation of Ho-Chung scholars comes to this these subjects and how they'll reframe them and how they'll reimagine them and how they'll answer them differently. And if 10 years from now, the starting point is what Cantrowitz failed to see was I will <laughs> consider that this book to have been a great success.
0: You anticipated the next question, which was, had you faced any blowback either in your research or the marketing of this book as a white man of European descent writing about native peoples?
1: Not blowback and not. And I would say concern might even be put it too strongly. Um, I, the book is really I mean, I, I say this in, with huge gratitude and uh maybe a lack of modesty but the book's been so far has been received well i don't i expect at some point there is going to be some strong pushback on some part of this i can foresee some places where that could be the case i know there are things that i didn't do a good job with but in general the most <laughs> the most serious uh charge against the book is um that i'm not i'm not writing from the inside and You know, of course, I frankly confess that, you know, that's that's the nature of this book. And I understood when I decided that I was going to write it, that that was going to be a drawback of it. But I I decided to do it anyway.
0: Well, what about your own internal understanding in the years that you've been working with this material? Has your understanding of the issues deepened over time or maybe even changed a bit?
1: Oh, quite a lot. I tell a story at the very end of the book, which is one of those moments where I realized how little I understood. And, and that was uh, in, a, in a class about five years ago. I, I'd been teaching a, a freshman seminar in Ho-Chunk history, and it had attracted, you know, first semester freshmen, mostly honor students, but students, non-native students for the most part, and students with no, uh, no previous knowledge. Um, who just thought the topic looked interesting. And so I would do this exercise with them where I would get them to read some of the kind of early histories of the Ho-Chunk nation, and then plot plot Ho-Chunk history as a series of of migrations, mostly forced migrations, uh, across a map of, of the upper Midwest. And this had always been a really great exercise because the students have to assimilate a text and plot it on a map and think about where a story begins and ends. And it's a great kind of methods conversation to have in a history class, especially right at the beginning. But uh, in 2018, I moved this class to an upper level, thinking I'd get some some more advanced students. It'd be a little more fun and maybe we'd get a little farther with it. And somebody would decide to go on to be a graduate student, whatever. I had grand ambitions in that way. And instead, what happened was. Almost no undergraduate signed up for it, but I kept getting phone calls from and emails from Ho-Chunk tribal members who wanted to audit the class. And I didn't feel like I could say no. I didn't want to say no. So when the class convened, there were two undergraduates, a couple of academic staff members on campus, uh, some of them uh, Native American, though not Ho-Chunk, and, and about nine Ho-Chunk people. So it was a completely different classroom dynamic than than i would ever been in before. And of course, we had to have a, a serious conversation the whole first day about authority over knowledge and what each of us was bringing to the table. And I thought it went really well. You know, I was you know, kind of proud of how this was going, how humbly I was approaching it, right? Uh, little did I know. Um, the next week, so I give them the assignment to do this exercise with a text describing Ho-Chunk movement and a map and plot the map. And when we come back, for the seminar the next week nobody's done it the two undergraduates have done it but none of the ho-chunk tribal members have done the map and i'm like what did i get wrong here what's going on and so i ask a couple of leading questions as we teachers do and i get nothing back and so finally i i pull out the map that actually does that work that shows the migrations you know mostly removals and the return of ho-chunk people it's a it's reproduced in the book it's re- Produced anywhere you'll find a modern Ho-Chunk history, you'll find this map. And I say, well, what about this one? And they look at it. And finally, after a really painful silence, one of the women in the class says, I don't want to talk about this map. I want to talk about another map. I want to talk about the map of the places they told us never to go and the stories they told us about why. And that kind of hangs in the air. That's a terrifying thing to say. It was, and I I was literally stunned. And while that's reverberating in the air, the woman next to her says, I want to talk about the map of the places they told us to run and hide when they come for us. And it took a while. I won't say that I had this realization immediately, but what I came to understand about that moment was that they were telling me, this map is saying that the story of Ho-Chunk history is a terrible history, which we overcame And it is neatly wrapped up by the 1880s with this uh, acquisition of uh, private property and tribal interest trust land in Wisconsin. What they were telling me is that struggle against colonialism has not stopped, that we have been continuing to fight against the fight with sundown towns and hostile settlers and the dangers from both state officials, you know, black cars and social workers coming to take children or. Vigilantes, murdering people, assaulting women. They were reminding me that this co- the colonization didn't stop in 1882 because the federal government provided a little bit of money that Ho-Chunk ho- people could use to take advantage of the Homestead Act. That continues to be the kind of defining change in my understanding of the history here, is that colonization is ongoing. And the resistance
0: to colonization
1: is also ongoing.
0: Did that affect the text of this book that we have before us? I
1: like to think that it did. I like to think that instead of wrapping it up as a, a story of a heroic and sort of partly successful struggle, it points toward the kind of continuing dynamics. And I've written a little bit at the end of the book, trying to make some connections that I see between this history and other histories of what I call anti-citizenship, other, other histories of... Groups of people who may be formally endowed with American citizenship and equality don't actually experience that. You know, you don't have to take much of a tour through United States history to to see that working. The historian May Nye uh, has this very useful phrase, um, the alien citizen, uh, which he defines as people who are formally entitled to U.S. citizenship but are held to be racially ineligible to it. And if we think about the de- deportation or banishment, not just of Mexican immigrants, but of Mexican American citizens in the 1930s, if we think about the incarceration of not just Japanese but Japanese American citizens in the 1940s, uh, and then we think about other deportations, if we think about rendition and Guantanamo Bay and the and the stripping of citizenship from people, we can see that there there are still there is still a struggle unfolding uh, about what citizenship really means and whether people really are entitled to it and on what basis it can be really just stripped from them when a court or an administration or vigilantes take it upon themselves to say, we're the real citizens.
0: I asked earlier about there being an aha light bulb moment when you realize the implications of citizenship. Was there an even earlier light bulb aha moment when you decided, oh my gosh, this is something I really need to look into—the whole topic oh, of yeah. the treatment of Native peoples, primarily the Ho Chunk yeah. here in our own neighborhoods.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, as 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 we talked about a little while ago, I didn't start out anywhere near this field. I I was a historian of really of white supremacy and then of black uh, activism in the nineteenth century, and. I thought that's where my career was going to be and remain. And I thought that was where my interest was going to be and remain. But I was actually standing exactly where I'm standing right now, on the back terrace of my house on the east side of Madison, uh, with a couple of historians, including two specialists in Native American history, not usually the people I spent the most time talking with, but my guests of my wife. And one of them said, just sort of in passing, well, you know, this whole neighborhood is built on effigy mounds and i thought what i knew there were the mounds down at hudson park but the whole neighborhood and so i started just just doing a little digging and sure enough there were hundreds of mounds on this part of lake this part of the lake shore lake monona and there were thousands in the region there were tens of thousands there may have been many more than that and and what that told me suddenly is you know, uh, uh, American history, as I knew it, U.S. history is this little scrim on top of a much older history. And I guess I knew that, but I'd always thought of it in the terms that American historians get, get taught to think of that, which is there's history, which is the nation state and its, its sequels. And there's prehistory, what happened before, you know, before Europeans arrived. What a crazy distinction that is. And yet I had sort of absorbed it as you know sort of as part of the air that i breathed as a historian and what that comment did was dislodge that just ever so slightly and just couldn't stop pulling at the thread that, that had left dangling and so i realized okay so who who built the mounds and who who were their descendants and that led me to the ho-chung people and then where are the ho-chung well there are ho-chung people in fact right here right now always have been and who are they and what can they tell me? And that led to some conversations, uh, some people who were extremely generous uh, with their time and generous with my ignorance. And yeah, one thing led to another. And what started out as just a little side trip, maybe I'll teach a class, maybe I'll, you know, do this and that turned into an article, turned into two. And then I'm definitely not writing a book. And no, I don't, I'm not trying, I can't do it. And I'm writing a book and now I've written a book. (laughs) And now I'm talking about the book.
0: Uh, and 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 here we are, you know. In my neighborhood, the golf course is on Ho-Chunk, is, is where the Ho-Chunk had their vacation summer area. Mm, mm. So having done the lectures, written the book, learned a bit of the language, are you going to continue in this area or go back to the black-white dyad? I'm going to continue thinking and talking and teaching this area because i can't
1: I can't unsee what I've seen. You know, I, I I've never stopped teaching about and thinking about the black white diet in America because it is one of the essential stories of understanding the complexity and the tragedy and maybe the promise of 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 the country. Now that I've had this uh, experience thinking about these these ideas and uh, and talking with these folks, i, I can't do work that doesn't somehow embrace and include this, this part of the history. So the, for example, the, the big challenge for me has been, you know, I've got a class that I inherited called slavery, the civil war and reconstruction. This is part of that history. Am I going to rename the class now? I don't know, but I'm definitely teaching it differently than I did. Um, I'm definitely now asking the students to think about why it is, that the narrative of colonialism and of native resistance doesn't feature in the way we talk about the civil war and what would happen if we asked it to feature in that story or ask the civil war to feature in, in the other story um as far as what what research what work i do next i'm still in this kind of refraction <laughs> refractory phase after after this book and hoping to get a chance to to talk to a lot of people about the book and then see where that takes me. And in recent years, I've been doing a lot of work um, in sort of public facing history work uh, with the the, uh, report to the Chancellor on the Ku Klux Klan, and then working with the Public History Project and now with the Center for Campus History. And then also with a a project on campus called Our Shared Future, which is about the campus's relationship with Ho-Chunk Nation in particular and, and with the other First Nations of Wisconsin. And so it's I think it's likely that whatever I do next is going to have a pretty substantial public facing component in it as well and be more collaborative, less of the single author, historian uh, model that I've pursued most of my career.
0: Well, and finally, as to the book, you use some very tough terms. I mean, not just calling Henry Dodge a regional warlord, but you use terms like extermination and genocide. Mm -hmm. Would it would it have been difficult to publish this book as written 30, 40, 50 years ago?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, the, um, when it's not really until the last 20 years, and that's generous, that um, that scholars, scholars working in Native American history could publish and say genocide, um, even where it is transparently warranted, like in the case of uh, the conquest of California, in the 1850s, And that is very, very clearly meets all any definition you want of genocide. Um, uh, but but until a series of really thorough works documenting that experience, um, scholars were either uncomfortable or unwilling uh, to use that word. Um, I think, and 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 of course, you know, any any strong word um, can runs the risk of seeming like hyperbole. Um, but, but it, you know I think, I think we have to call what we see uh, by their proper names. And one of the things I'm most proud of weirdly on the, on the UW Madison campus recently is that when the group coming up with a heritage marker for uh, what's now called Our Shared Future on Bascom Hill, uh, wanted to describe uh, what the United States sought to do to the Ho-Chunk in the 19th century, used the phrase ethnic cleansing. And of course, as you can imagine, there was initially significant pushback to that because uh, it seems like just hyperbole or an inflammatory phrase, that kind of thing. But um, the, the, the people who wrote the text brought the Chancellor, brought late Chancellor Blank, uh, the definition of ethnic cleansing. You know, United Nations definition of ethnic cleansing. And she looked at it, she looked at history and she said, okay, that's what that was. And so it's on the sign. Um, and that, to me, uh, you know, <laughs> in a funny way, that is the fearless sifting and winnowing there, right? With emphasis maybe on the fearless part. Uh, it shouldn't be so hard to to call things by their proper names, but it is really hard because uh, e- even those of us who uh, who came up studying, say, the relationship between uh, African American and white Americans in us history, have often approached that through a highly nationalist and even patriotic framework, you know. But the achievement of full citizenship, as we often say, you know, right out of second-class citizenship toward full or equal citizenship. But um, it's much harder to tell a story that doesn't just uh, talk about shortcomings, but that casts, you know, the entire national project into a negative light. That's a that's a tough thing. That's a tough thing to encounter and a tough thing to do. But I think unless we can actually take account of that, we're only going to be telling ourselves stories about, you know, the westward movement of the United States that are basically fairy tales designed to, you know, make us feel good about our ancestors and to soothe our consciences. But but that's not a truthful history. And that doesn't explain the world that we live in. So so I think I, I think the more we can do to call things by their proper name, the better off we're going to be.
0: History without the bad stuff is just propaganda.
1: Exactly.
0: That's what I just told my students on their
1: syllabus this fall. It's interesting.
0: (laughs) Well, on that note, uh, I'm afraid that is all the time we have with Professor Stephen Kantrowitz. Again, the book is Citizens of a Stolen Land, a Ho-Chunk History of the 19th Century United States. Andrew Thomas will be your host next week with his guest, the poet Paul Tran, to discuss his well-received debut collection, All the Flowers Kneeling. I'll be back. Well, I'm not sure when I'll be back because this is my last new show for the foreseeable future. It has been a great opportunity and privilege these past three years to share with you the conversations I've had with authors like Joyce Carol Oates, David Marinus, Ben Sidron, Allison Bechtel, Andrew Marinus, Amy Nezumatatil, Joel Selvin, Joan Lester, Carl Hyasson, Patty Lowe, Fran Hirsch, Charles Monroe Kane, Dick Wagner, Paige Glotzer... Chad Allen Goldberg, Jen Rubin, Jordan Ellenberg, Barrett Swanson, Jennifer Chiaverini, Steve Koss, Rick Perlstein, Daniel McGuire, Daniel Evans, and on and on. It has been a great privilege, and I'm very thankful for the opportunity. What an education I've gotten, and I hope you enjoy those conversations. But I'm on deadline for my new Madison history book, covering the period 1932 to 2006, so I need to step back from regular hosting until that's done. I may pinch hit from time to time and provide some best-of episodes, but I won't be on the regular schedule until Wart's Golden Jubilee year of 2025. Thankfully, there's a whole Madison Bookbeat team more than able to pick up the slack. And if you are interested in maybe being among their number, please contact Shali, that's C-H-A-L-I, at W-O-R-T-F-M dot org. So, until we meet again, on behalf of News and Public Affairs Director Shali Pittman, the aforementioned Andrew Thomas on the board, and all of us here at Madison Bookbeat, I'm Stu Levitan. Thank you for joining us. Now, as Ben Sidron plays us out with a little bit of Little Sherry, Please stay tuned for Alex Walding White and All Around Jazz. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. Listener-sponsored community radio since 1975.